Our sermon text today is from Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. And uh, if you brought your own Bible, I invite you to turn there. We're actually going to be working with this text a lot today. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. I invite you to go inside those and take a look. Just a few words of introduction and background on this passage. It was written by the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that was in Paul's mind as he was writing this part of Romans, an image that was in his mind, was the story of the people of God being called out of slavery in Egypt and their wanderings in the desert, their crossing of the Red Sea, and their arrival then eventually into the promised land. This was a big theological historical category for Paul. There's other places in his writing where he refers to this explicitly. Here it's not as explicit, but there are so many parallels to that story in Exodus that it's clear that he's rewriting, uh, sort of reclaiming that narrative for Christ. And so uh, if you remember uh, the story of Exodus, that's helpful as we read this. Exodus, so much of Exodus is about God's presence for his people. At one point in the wilderness, the people were grumbling, and they asked this question. They said, is the Lord among us or not? They, they had been pulled out of Egypt. They had been pulled into the, you know, uh, delivered. But yet they were still wondering and they sometimes longing for their old days, even though it meant slavery. God was present for them. And over and over again, we find in Exodus that he's present in these unique ways. In one, the very beginning, we see that God is present to Moses in this fire in a bush that's never consumed. As the people are wandering through the wilderness, we see that God is present to them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. These pillars both guard them and guide them as they go through the wilderness. As they built a tabernacle in the wilderness, God's presence, which is called in the Old Testament, it's called the Shekinah, the glory or the presence of God, lives there in the tabernacle with the people. God is present with his people all throughout Exodus. If you look especially at fire and at water, and there's a lot of references to fire and water in Exodus, those are words that are often used for the Spirit in the New Testament. We have the water of baptism at the Jordan, uh, which is the Spirit. We also have the fire of Pentecost, which is the Spirit bringing his giftings to the world. And so fire and water, cloud, and the, pil the pillars of cloud and fire, those are uh, in, in ways that are God, God is present in Exodus. Those could very well be ways that God is present in the Spirit in the book of Exodus. And uh, to ask, is, is God the Father present in those things or God the Spirit present in those things? The answer is yes, He's both are present. The context of our passage today, particularly, is Romans 8, where Paul begins by saying, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's developed this whole theme that sin, our own sin, brings condemnation. You may remember the Romans wrote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's this condemnation that's coming our way because we've broken God's law. But that, that that's not the final word, but Christ has reconciled us with God through his work on the cross and has justified us and reconciled us into a new and right relationship with God, which is uh, to give us a new sense of righteousness in our lives. And he's going to develop that idea further in Romans 8 where he talks an awful lot about the Spirit. We, so we have God the Father, God the Son, 
But here in Romans 8, he's going to focus on the Spirit. And so we're, we're rounding out the Trinity this Sunday by looking at Romans 8. And the, the, what the Spirit does is indwells us and gives us a way in which we are living into that reconciliation and righteousness that God gives us. As we listen to this passage today, Romans 8, 12 through 17, listen for how it is that the Spirit changes us and connects us with the Father in a new relationship of righteousness. So with that introduction, our reading. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you, re- you received the Spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paper stuck in my hand. I'd like you to go in your Bibles and open them up, because we're going to go through this, this one passage line by line. It's a slim six verses in Romans, but it's beautiful, and it bears a real close examination this morning. And I want to start in verse 12 with this word that we have right away. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. Um, if you remember this passage from older versions of the Bible, like the King James or the American Standard Version, It actually reads like this. It says, So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. The NIV has updated it a bit. We have an obligation not to the sinful nature to live according to it. So whether we say obligation or whether we say that we're debtors, there's this sense that we owe something because of our sin. If you own a house but you don't, but you've got a loan on it, you have a debt on your home, you don't actually own your house, do you? The bank owns it, and probably, at least in our case, the bank owns a whole lot more of our house than we do. In fact, if you pay it all off except for a dollar, the bank could, and and you just stop paying and for some reason leave the country and don't communicate with the bank at all, for that one dollar, the bank could come and take your house eventually. It would take a while. But the bank owns your house as long as you are a debtor to the bank. The same way Paul is saying with the sinful nature and our desire to master our sinful nature. As long as we owe a debt to that, then it will own us. As a result of what Christ has done for us that Paul has written about in the first seven chapters of Romans, he says that old debt has been erased by Christ. That old debt that we owe to sin, to to God because of our sin, to the righteous uh, judgment on our sin that we deserve, that's been erased. And he's telling us how it happens. It happens through the work of the Spirit, and that's what we're going to see in here. Now, there are echoes of Exodus in this. There's this 
connection between being in debt to somebody and being in slavery to somebody. Because when you're in debt to somebody, you don't completely own yourself. You don't completely own the thing that you've borrowed against. And slavery is that thing where you don't have control over your own life or your own uh, fate. And that was the case of the people who were under bondage in, in Egypt. Look at verse 13. Paul says the debt is no longer to the sinful nature or our ability to manage the sinful nature, not our ability to, to keep the law. It's impossible for us to do so. But the debt is instead to the Spirit. If you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. You can't do it. But if by the Spirit to whom we owe the true debt, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And we have here a shift. Our old debt was to the sinful nature. The new debt is to the Spirit. The Spirit has rescued us from this. And by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. And that's life for us. I want you to imagine uh, that you live in a jungle, which could be fun for you if you like Tarzan movies. You can just kind of imagine this very easily. You live in the jungle, but in that jungle, you, you need to wander around and forage and get food and just go about your business. But in that jungle lives one particularly dangerous and large tiger who weighs 800 pounds. And that tiger is always prowling around that jungle. And you know that to get your business done, you have to avoid that tiger. You have to watch for it. You have to manage it. You have to figure out where it is and not go in that part of the jungle where that tiger is. And when the tiger comes, you have to either run away or climb a tree, although that doesn't work because tigers can climb trees. Uh, it's a pretty resilient tiger. There's a difference between avoiding something and then actually dealing with it permanently. Paul is saying here that you, you, can't, you can't deal with the sinful nature. You can't deal with sin by trying to avoid it. It may work for you for a season, for an hour. If you've got a lot of willpower, maybe for a week or for a month. But that sin, like a tiger, is always roaming around and will eventually get you. Avoiding it doesn't work. The only way to deal with this tiger in a way that's going to be permanent, in a way that's going to free you, from having to avoid it all the time, is if somebody comes and captures that tiger and kills it. Now, we, we love animals, so I don't want to talk about killing tigers as like a great thing. You know, we don't want to kill animals, but the tiger represents something dangerous that we think we can avoid. But God says we need, it needs to die. And once it's died, it no longer poses a threat to us anymore. It has lost its power to do anything to us. And that's often how death is described in the New Testament, is that when something dies, like our old nature or like our sin, when it dies, it loses power. When it's in the grave, it has no power to come back out and get us. And here's a very provocative thing that Paul says in verse 13. If by the Spirit... You put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The spirit has the ability to kill what we cannot kill, to manage what we cannot manage, so that we don't go through life trying to avoid it, but that it's dealt with in finality. Just as an aside, this doesn't mean that you stop sinning. It means that the condemnation of that sin, the penalty, which is dire, 
which is being under the penalty of all the law, not just the law that you break by giving into that sin. That penalty has been dealt with decisively and finally, and it has no power anymore to come after you. That's an amazing thing that the Spirit does, allows us to put to death the misdeeds of the body and give us life. So our debt is to the Spirit, but Paul's not going to leave us there because we're still in an old debt. There's a, there was a debt to sin and our way of managing sin. Now there's a debt to the Spirit because the Spirit has rescued us and, and killed our tiger for us. Um, but Paul says the Spirit goes beyond that place and puts us into a new relationship with God. Look at verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or children of God. We become the children of God by the power of the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. I'm going to say that again because it's so important. We become the children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things the Spirit does. Now, there's a lot of talk about spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, preaching, teaching. Uh, there's a list of them in, in 1 Corinthians. And preaching actually is, a low, is on the low end, all right? So I'm doing a minor thing here because Paul in 1 Corinthians says, none of those are as big as the gift of love. And all of verse uh, chapter 13, which you're going to hear over and over again when you go to a wedding, right, is about love. He says, let me show you a more excellent way. This gift of love is far greater than all those other gifts. And there's other lists of gifts in the scriptures. Galatians talks about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there's no law at all because the Spirit gives them to us. Here's an even bigger gift than preaching, teaching, speaking in tongues, those fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. The biggest gift of the Spirit, and the one that we don't understand or talk about enough, is that the Spirit gives us the ability to become the children of God. It is the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit changes our status from debtor, somebody with an obligation, to an inheritor, somebody who is part of the family. You're changed from a debtor to an inheritor, from somebody who's a slave to somebody who's a full member of the family of God, a partner in everything that happens. Let's go further and see how that happens. Verse 15, you did not receive a spirit, lowercase s, you'll see in your Bible, that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption. The spirit's not dysfunctional. He doesn't take your old slavery and replace it with a new slavery, just with a different master. He changes the dynamic altogether. If we go on in 15, we'll see what it says. By him, by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, what is ABBA? ABBA is a band from Sweden. You may have heard about them. They're really fun. I just love listening to them. I've got their greatest hits, Dancing Queen, all the rest. Set that aside, okay? ABBA, before ABBA, there was ABBA, with a capital A, and the B that's not backwards, right? ABBA is the Aramaic word for father, but it's even more intimate 
and loving than that. It's really the Aramaic word for daddy, for papa. Our children call me papa. They call Krista mama. In your family, it may be mommy, daddy, poppy. There's these words that we have in our own language which are so intimate and loving. And Aramaic, this is an aside, but this is important. Aramaic occurs very few places in the New Testament. Usually, the, most of the New Testament is written in Greek, Koine Greek, a version of Greek. In a few places, there are some Aramaic words in there. Aramaic is an older language. It's more similar to Hebrew. It was the mother tongue of a lot of people, including the Apostle Paul. It was the mother tongue of Jesus Christ. It was his, probably his preferred language. It was the language that he grow, grew up hearing his mother Mary speak to him. And if you've ever studied another language and you've tried to speak in another language, sometimes you get to a point where you have to say something that's so full of emotion or so close to where your heart is that you can't say it in your second language. You have to say it in your mother tongue. That's Aramaic for these people. And so there's a few places I think that are interesting. Aramaic comes out when people in the New Testament are experiencing a great deal of emotional elation or distress or when they're having this deep connection to God and to spiritual things. So, for example, Mary Magdalene in John 20, she meets Jesus in the garden and she uses the Aramaic word rabuni, which means teacher. She's greeting her resurrected Lord. She's overcome. In Mark 5, when Jesus heals a little girl, you can imagine in a room with a dead child, and the parents are wailing. And this moment when Jesus raises her from the dead, he says to her, Talitha kum, Aramaic for little girl, get up. A deeply emotional time. When Jesus is on the cross in Matthew 27, and he's hanging there, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, why have you forsaken me? Aramaic is used in these deep moments. In Mark 14, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says these very same words. He's speaking to his Father about the cup that he wishes would pass away, but yet he wants the Father's will to be done. And he says, Abba, Papa, Daddy, I'm in this moment of deep need. I'm speaking to my father in my mother tongue. Paul tells us here in verse 15 that it is by the Spirit's power that we are able to come into the presence of the God of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, that called things into existence that did not yet exist. Imagine the awesome and the, the gloriness and the power of that presence. And in that presence, the Spirit enables us to speak to him in our mother tongue and say, Papa, Abba. You don't talk to the God of the universe that way unless the Spirit enables you to have that familiar relationship. Paul is really underlining here that when you are adopted into the family by the Spirit, you are in a deep, tightly knit, emotionally bonded family, and your father is one that you love. Just one other aside. I know that in this room and in everywhere, 
there are those among us for whom when we talk about God as father or even as papa or daddy, that that doesn't work for us because we've had fathers or father figures who were terrible. That's a reality in our world. And I want to acknowledge that. Fathers and mothers alike in our world are human. And they disappoint us and they let us down, sometimes in massive ways and sometimes in small ways. And none of them are perfect. And some of them have done incredible damage to us. I want to acknowledge that. But I also want to hold out that God the Father is apparent to us in ways that our own human parents can never be. In ways that are more loving, that are more just, that are more concerned, that are more whole than anything that we've ever seen. And my hope is that if you've gone through life with a terrible father figure, that heaven will be all the more sweet for you when you meet your true father there as you're adopted into God's family. I'll set that aside. I, I just want to be real about that, that we, we have fathers in this world who have totally let us down, and mothers too. Let's go on. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It's, if we needed any other examples of what the Spirit does, here's one. The Spirit vouches for us. The Spirit testifies on our behalf. This is another thing the Spirit does. There's some language here that sounds like a court of law. Some place where somebody may accuse us and say, well, I don't think they're part of the family. They don't look like everybody else. I mean, it could be something like that. Or how did that person get in the family? The Spirit will stand up that day and say, nope. The, all the paperwork's in order. Child Protective Services signed off on it. It's, this, is, this child is part of the family. The Spirit vouches for us that we are God's children. And then the ending here. If we're children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Think about if, you, if I owe you something, if I owe you a million dollars, and I don't ever pay it, I'm going to owe that to you until the day I die. I'm going to belong to you on some level. I'm going to have an obligation or a debt to you. But if you adopt me, if we go down to the court and you legally adopt me, and I become part of your legal family, I don't owe you that money anymore. Because your family has now absorbed that debt. It's now a joint deficit that the whole family shares on some level. It's absorbed into the new family. It's the same way with God. We owe him a debt that we can't pay. Jesus Christ pays it on the cross. We're adopted as children of this new family, and this family has absorbed that debt. That's how it's dealt with. In a legal sense, it's not owed anymore. And we are full partners with what's going on. Finally, we're co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Literally, this says, we suffer together with Christ that also we might be given splendor together with Christ. When we come into the family, we are co-heirs with Christ. His fortunes and our fortunes are tied together. That means the downside is when he suffers, we will suffer. Entering this family is not a cakewalk. This is a tough family to be in at times because we'll suffer for the sake of the cross. But having shared in that suffering, we will also share in the glory and the splendor that belongs to Christ. It's a great promise. I don't know what to do with it this morning, except that it's there. 
That glory is ours, and it's not a glory that I think any of us would go looking after very easily because it has some suffering tied into it, and it means being in the presence of God, which can be quite frightening unless we are his children and can speak to him in our mother tongue and say, Papa. The final invitation in this passage is that the Spirit is ready to take us out of slavery and into the promised land, just, just as God did with the people of Israel. The promised land is adoption into God's family. It's a land of shared suffering with Christ, but it's also shared glory and splendor as we are with him in all things, and we are all in with Jesus. I want, to, I want us to respond. Um, I'm done going through this line by line, but I want it to sit with us for a second, and I want you to go with me and imagine that jungle again. Um, imagine that you're in that jungle and that the tiger is still roaming around out there, but that that tiger is really that one thing that you're constantly in debt to. It could be some sin that you can't shake. It could be some attempt on your part to manage your brokenness that just never works, and it's always coming after you. Imagine that the Spirit now takes hold of you and it starts leading you through the jungle. And in the middle of the jungle is a very deep and a very wide and a very fast-moving river that's full of rapids and eddy currents and uh, whirlpools that can suck things under. And by the Spirit's... And, and as you walk through the jungle, the tiger gets your scent. He's right on your heels, just as the army of Egypt was right on the heels of the Israelites. And imagine that the tiger follows you all the way to the edge of this river. And by the prompting of the Spirit, you plunge in to this river. And you try to swim, but you can't. And the current takes you, and the tiger jumps in after you because he's hungry. And you go under, and your lungs fill with water, and you give up all hope, and you die in that river. This is what the Christian life is, to go under the water and to die. But then imagine that the Spirit picks you up out of the water and it lays you on the far bank and it blows its breath into your lungs and clears them out and you come to life. And you're staggering and you're sputtering and you're dripping wet and you've just been baptized. You look over your shoulder, and there's the tiger flailing its paws in the water, spinning around inside a vortex, getting sucked under and disappearing forever. And it's gone. It's carried away by the stream. And you come to your senses, and you see that that old thing has, that has followed you all your life is gone and dealt with permanently. And you're on the far side of the stream, you're in the promised land. You get your bearings and you look at who's there. And there on the far side is the God of the universe, sitting enthroned, surrounded by angels, in all of his majesty and glory, and any sane person would fall completely prostrate at that moment. But instead, you go up and you kneel at his feet and you say,
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Abba, Papa, Daddy, Dad, we thank you for your spirit who has given us the gift of adoption so that we are truly your children. Amen.